Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Christian Demeff, Medical Director of Cybersecurity with UC San Diego Health, and Scott Curry, Chief Information Security Officer, also with UC San Diego Health. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. Christian and Scott, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Anthony. All right, great. Um, well, I, I usually ask you about your organization and roles. Christian, I'm going to put you on the spot first, so you'll have to explain. You've been there longer, so you can explain the, about the organization a little bit uh, and your role, and then uh, Scott will tell us a little bit about your role. Well, um, UC San Diego Health is a, a large academic quaternary healthcare delivery organization in San Diego, California. Uh, we operate a myriad of uh, clinics out in the community, as well as two uh, larger hospitals, one in La Jolla, California, and one in downtown San Diego. Um, we um, uh, have a very large organization, lots of employees, but we also uh, are closely integrated with our academic counterpart across the street in La Jolla is the University of California, San Diego. And so we have a, a large undergraduate, graduate population, and quite an, a, an impressive amount of engineering students and others that'll play a part in this conversation moving forward. So we're a large academic healthcare center. And uh, generally speaking, I think we're, we're very much forward thinking. And as well, I think we'll get into later on in this discussion, how uh, we're looking to, to shake things up. That's our, I think our brand and our excitement around that area of innovation. And Christian, you have an interesting role, which uh, I don't think uh, a lot of organizations have, and maybe today we're going to learn why they might want to think about it. But tell me a little bit about your role. So I, I'm an ER doc by training. So most of the time when I'm at work, you'll find me in the trenches of the emergency department. Uh, but I also serve an operational role here uh, with Scott as the medical director of cybersecurity. Um, it, it is a very unique role. In fact, it was the first one in the nation to our knowledge which really put a clinician, someone like a nurse or a doctor, someone takes care of patients in a cybersecurity role where I help straddle, uh, if you will, the in intersection of clinical care and cybersecurity. So what I like to say is it's kind of like where bits and bites meet in blood. What are the implications of cybersecurity risk, not just to patient data, but also to patient well-being, patient safety. And so I work with Scott and the rest of our security team to try to help uh, bridge those gaps, translate between those uh, groups, as well as socialize and encourage the adoption of new security controls. You know, So if we roll something out, that traditionally speaking, many clinicians are resilient, or sorry, resistant to new cybersecurity controls. They think it's a drag on their workflows, whatever it may be. And so often I can go out as a as an advocate for certain new cybersecurity initiatives and help that particularly resistant group uh, understand the importance of it and help with adoption. So that's just one of several things I, I do here at UC San Diego. And I think every day we're learning more about ways that I can help uh, the organization. It's kind of an amazing um, opportunity to work with someone like Scott, um, where we can every day just identify new ways that that kind of collaboration can be useful. I'll turn it over to Scott. Scott, uh, a little bit about your role, please. Yeah, thanks very much. So, um, so I'm the Chief Information Security Officer, which uh, really covers all aspects of our sort of cybersecurity operations within UC San Diego Health. 
Uh, so between myself and my team, we're really focused on ensuring that we've implemented all of the administrative and technical controls to ensure that we're, um, you know, in a position to be able to deliver on our core mission, ultimately, which is which is patient care and, and uh, uh, healthcare delivery. Um, so my team really looks at how do we get the technical cybersecurity controls in place to be able to manage the risks associated with, um, you know, breaches and ransomware and so forth. And we do that across our health campus. And so we work obviously within our clinical areas, uh, within our administrative areas, but also with uh, a lot of the areas of our health system that are very focused on research and thinking about how do we uh, build a cybersecurity strategy that allows us to be thoughtful about how we manage and mitigate the risks associated with ransomware and data breaches and all of those things that you hear in the news, uh, but also with a, a really sharp focus on making sure that we're ultimately able to deliver on our primary purpose. Um, so what we don't want to do is get in the way of our ability to deliver patient care or get in the way of our ability to deliver on our research mission. And so it's it's fantastic for us from a cybersecurity perspective to have somebody like Christian on the team who can work with us really to understand you know, not only what it is we need to do to support our clinicians, but also to think about how the things that we choose to do may impact our clinicians so that we can build a model um, that allows us to be very uh, agile and resilient from a cybersecurity perspective, um, but also ensures that ultimately we're able to support our uh, our providers and our researchers and our, our faculty uh, in being able to, to meet the mission that we have as an organization. So, uh, Christian, it, it to me, your role makes me think of why the CMIO, CMIO role was developed. It was for the CIOs to have an interpreter to help them communicate with the clinicians. Well, now cyber is so important, it's almost like your role was developed so the CISO has an interpreter to deal with the clinicians, to have someone who walks in their shoes, has their credibility, and it's all about having right, both positions are about credibility with the clinicians, especially since you practice, right? If you had been someone who no longer practiced, that credibility can diminish over time. You have, especially on the vendor side, you have a lot of MDs who haven't practiced in a long time. And I think their street cred goes down over time, but but you've still got it. So is that is that it's the interpreter, the translator? Do you see that similarity with the CMI role? I definitely think that they they share a lot in their um, in their overlap. My, my read is the CMIO is not only an important interpreter between the CIO and the clinicians, but because they possess that clinical knowledge, uh, that street kit, if you will, they're actually taking care of patients. They're able to uniquely identify risks and opportunities that the CIO might not because they don't understand the clinical workflow. So it's not always just about translating those two. It's also about identifying opportunities and identifying risk. Um, typically speaking, most CMIOs are born out of a training pathway of, in clinical informatics. You know, they're used to the electronic health record. They're used to PACS, uh, the PACS uh, um, imaging uh, systems, et cetera. And, and really what they bring to the table is that is also a little bit of technical chops and data chops. I, I see a, this role as a medical director of cybersecurity, not only as a translator, not only as an identifier of risk and opportunity, uh, but also bring to the table on the cyber technical side, a set of skills um, that is born out of research. And this is something that uh, Scott mentioned, you know, we have a big research focus here at our institution. There are tools that doctors are trained in, uh, whether it be through their undergraduate education or their medical school training that teaches them how to look at problems and develop experiments, collect data, analyze these types of things to a pretty significant rigor. 
I think this role is primarily one of the great opportunities of this role is that I'm able to take that paradigm and apply it towards operational cybersecurity and say, why are we making this decision versus this decision? Can we collect data, analyze it critically, and make a better informed decision about how we roll out a new security control or how we're allocating certain resources? So it's a translator as well as brings a new set of skills to, to a domain, uh, which may or may not be represented at your organization. A lot of other places don't have something like that. So I, I really have seen it as uh, a nice, like new um, primordial ooze, if you will. There's new elements in this kind of collaboration. And every day we're seeing something new and new come out of it. Well, I didn't know we were going to talk about primordial ooze. No, I'm just kidding. That's uh, wonderful. That was uh, so really fascinating. Um, one of the, uh, Scott, uh, super interesting what Christian said about, I you know, uh, identifying cyber risks from his unique perspective. Um, maybe seeing things, definitely seeing things that a CISO would never see, would never come across because they're not doing that work. As much as you try and understand the workflows and what's happening, and your job's all about identifying and mitigating risk. Well, you have someone who can see risks that you might never see. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's tremendously valuable. Um, you know, as a as a CISO, I've worked in academic healthcare for years now. Um, but you know, that work in academic healthcare is, is never really gives you that true insight into the day to day of a clinical workflow. Um, you know, you can spend time with the clinicians. You can, you know, uh, do rotation, rotating shifts on various clinical wards to try and understand a little bit better what's happening. Um, but, but you never really have that true, you know, in the trenches insight into what's going on uh, from a clinical perspective. And the more and more systems that we have that become interconnected and network connected, um, the more those risks to clinical care are really only going to come out of getting the insight of what the physicians are seeing on a day-to-day -day basis and what the impact of a cybersecurity event could have uh, on our patients and the people that are under our care. So I, I think it's really tremendously valuable to be able to have you know, that clinical insight, but with that cybersecurity overlay that allows you know, me and my team to have you know, insight into clinical operations in a way that would be much more difficult for us to have. And certainly over the years, I've worked with a lot of CMIOs and, and, you know, to varying degrees, they've been successful in helping to do some of that translation that you talked about. But I think really having a physician with a true understanding of cybersecurity and cybersecurity risk that we can collaborate with to try and understand how do we how do we move our organization forward and create sort of leading thought around how we approach managing some of these risks, I think is extraordinarily valuable. And it's it's really important for us to think through you know, how can we take advantage of the two roles that we have, you know, from a security operations and a, a clinical cybersecurity expertise, it creates new opportunities to, to think about cybersecurity in different ways that I think are unique to what we have here at UC San Diego Health. Yeah. And, um, and Christian, you talked about, it's not only about identifying risks uh, or you from your unique angle, but also suggesting the best ways to roll out controls. So, uh, Scott says, "Hey, we got to put in multi-factor authentication, or we got to we got to we got to roll this stuff out." Um, and Scott may uh, have a particular idea about the best way to roll it out, and he runs it by you, and you say, "Well, you know, uh, that's not going to work with these folks. Here's how we want to do it. We're going to get to the same point, but I know how these folks, busy, how busy they are, how they need to be interacted with." Uh, they're not going to love this because it's going to slow them down a little bit. But so here's how we got to couch it. Here's we got to roll it out. 
So talk a little bit more about that. They are unique folks, busy folks, but Scott, they're your most important customer. So Christian, go ahead, please. I completely agree. I will just say Scott's already pretty fantastic at the messaging side of this. So I'm, I'm, I don't have much to add on that point. Uh, and, but I will say um, the secret sauce, I think in this role, is not only how do you message it, how do you roll it out and how do you make sure at the end of the day, it's done so in the least obtrusive way, which we collaborate on, but it's, it's also in conveying the importance of the message. And one of the cool things that we've been able to do here, Scott and I, to translate what this particular cybersecurity risk means to patient care. This is the light bulb moment. If you go to a clinician who every year has to do a manual, you know, a required uh, cybersecurity training, they may get some phishing education, whatever it's going to be. And every time they think about cybersecurity, they think it's burden. It's just another required training. It doesn't mean anything to them. It doesn't really help them in their day-to-day mission of taking care of patients. If you approach it in that same way, you're going to fail. You're going to have that resilience. You're not going to be able to pull out new new programs. If you want to improve the cybersecurity of your medical devices, for example, you're not going to get clinical buy-in if you approach this as a data security, HIPAA, same old conversation. Instead, what we've done here is said, well, let's talk about ransomware as an example. Doctor, you're taking care of this patient. You need this critical service, this critical medical device to take care of that patient right in front of you. And that patient has a bleed in their brain. And if you don't have a CT scanner, you can't treat them. And not treating that patient, you know exactly what's going to happen. That patient's probably going to die. That patient's probably not going to be able to walk again. There's going to be some type of adverse patient outcome If this particular cyber attack is successful, this mitigation, this control will reduce our risk and at the end of the day, make the patient you're taking care of safer and make you less susceptible to uh, to liability and other concerns. When you translate that risk from the old data security paradigm to patient safety and do it in a convincing way, speaking their language with realistic scenarios, that's a light bulb moment. Clinicians turn from cyber, uh, you know, they fight mitigations mm-hmm. to now they're advocating, you know, in their own departments. These are no longer just burdens that don't mean anything. We're really so connected and so dependent on it. It's a requirement now. And I, it's a patient safety issue. I'm on board. That translation has been really important and has really been the secret sauce, I think, in a lot of ways. We have to sh- t- speak in the clinician's language of patient safety and not be too sensationalized, not use scenarios that are just out of the world. You really have to speak the language, use something realistic. They become fans of your work almost overnight. And, and I, I couldn't agree more with that. I think, you know, really taking the conversation from being what has traditionally been an IT conversation, you know, it's about firewalls and, you know, antivirus and things like that. And, and changing that way we discuss these risks into no it's not a technology conversation it's a it's an organizational risk it's an enterprise risk and it has a direct and measurable impact on our ability to deliver patient care and therefore on our ability to keep our patients safe and i think that's really the way we need to be having conversations in cybersecurity and healthcare is is not about the the technology but really all about what is the impact of these major events on us as clinicians, on us as a healthcare delivery organization? And when you start having conversations in that context, you know, as Christian said, you can sort of see people's eyes light up and, and the realization comes that, 
okay, this is not just something that's an IT problem. This is an all of us problem. And how can we participate in trying to make the organization safer? Um, and so I think it's really important that those conversations are happening. And I think that's something that we do really well is making sure that messaging is there, those conversations happen. And that, you know, Christian can bring that credibility that you mentioned earlier, that, you know, he is a physician, he understands their problems, but he also can understand the impact that cybersecurity can have on patient care and can sort of evangelize that for the rest of the organization at the physician and the provider level. So you mentioned ransomware. Um, we we talked about in terms of uh, sort of getting through to clinicians and, and the light bulb moment, connecting it to patient care. We need to do that in an authentic way. We know it's authentic because we understand the connection. Um, Christian, you were involved uh, with Christopher Longhurst, uh, who's your CIO, correct? Uh, with the study on ransomware that showed there is a regional effect to a ransomware taking out a particular hospital. There is a cascading larger effect um, on a larger geography. This, uh, I, I would imagine, could further show your report, your study further showed, further proved this connection between cybersecurity and patient safety. So again, it's it's not just bringing that message to the clinicians, but having the, the data people, right? Having the proof to say, no, really, look. <laughs> so talk talk more about that study if you want, Christian. Thank you so much. And and uh, Scott was a part of that as well. Um, you know, there's a problem. We all know this. When we're in healthcare cyber, we know there's an issue. One of our uh, one of our hospitals gets ransomed. Not our individual hospitals, but one of our um, collective hospitals in the United States gets ransomed. If you want to go in and ask what happened and collect data and to try to share that, it's really hard. There's legal concerns. Um, there are inability to measure things because the way you measure things inherently is electronic. What do I mean by that? We measure patient safety using tools like the electronic health record. Well, when you're ransomed, often those things aren't operational. So, you know, there's legal concerns, why people don't share information. There's technical concerns. We don't have the data anymore because the system that we used to collect, it was ransomed. There's a few other reasons why it's really hard to measure what happens at a hospital that was impacted specifically. Our study tried to do the second best thing. You know, it's measure what happened in the periphery, what happened to the hospitals around hospitals that were ransomed. And we saw some pretty significant impacts in our emergency department. We, you know, we saw a lot more patients. We saw a lot more ambulances. We saw a lot more patients like strokes, you know, patients that were undergoing strokes. A lot more of them came to our hospital because they couldn't go to those other hospitals that were ransomed. And so what I agree, this study was designed to do the second best thing, which is measure what happens in the periphery. And we saw some significant impacts. What does that mean for us moving forward in the healthcare cybersecurity world is, is that you can no longer just focus on your resiliency. You're only as safe and you only are as secure as your region around you. And you might do a great job, but maybe your partner doesn't, or maybe you're not doing so well and your partner across the region. You work in a symbiotic geographic location and that spillover effect can be significant. That would argue that we should really be working together, not just at our own organizations, but building geographic resiliency. We need to be talking about healthcare um, in regions and what would happen essentially to load balance if these hospitals were attacked and these ones weren't. How do we prioritize care for really sick 
patients like strokes and traumas and heart attacks. Because at the end of the day, if we don't take that preparatory step to build out those networks of collaboration, cooperation, real-time information sharing, um, what we'll have is uh, people won't stop getting sick um, just because there's a ransomware attack in town. They're just going to overwhelm the hospitals that aren't on diversion, who aren't um, being attacked themselves. And that can essentially be the same thing. So, Scott, is is there any – I mean, I can't imagine – there's much you can do in terms of getting your partners around town to, to take care of their cybersecurity a little better. Say, you know, if you guys go down, we get inundated and we can't take care of those patients as well as we like to because of the sheer volume. So there's an interest, as Christian said, there's an interest in regional safety. I don't, I don't know if CISOs from different organizations in a region are sort of working together. Um, you know, it makes me think of the web. This is, this is a type of web and third-party risk management is a huge, huge issue that I talk to CISOs about where you have this web that connects you to all these vendors you have, and we realize how dependent we are on them. It's just so interesting, the evolution of, of from the sort of castle and moat in the perimeter, which is gone now to everyone says identity is everything now. I don't know. Take that wherever you want. Yeah. So, I mean, it... it... It, it's interesting. I think the for years in the CISO community, there's always been this assumption that there was going to be regional impacts when when ransomware happened. Um, in organizations I've been with in the past, we you know talked to our colleagues that have had a ransomware event, and we you know we we could sort of see that there was some change in our you know regional preparedness in terms of the number of patients coming in. Uh, but it was always sort of anecdotal, and it was always sort of assumed. I think one of the really interesting things that we're able to do here by bringing that research focus to some cybersecurity problems based on real data is, is to truly create some evidence that says it does need to be much more regional. And so I think historically, you know, within any given region, CISOs would certainly talk to one another and we'd, you know, um, have conversations and we'd, you know, talk a little bit about what we're doing and some of the threats that we were seeing, but it was it was largely informal. Um, I think what this study is starting to demonstrate is that we need to go a little bit beyond that sort of informal collaboration and start thinking through, are there really meaningful regional preparedness pieces of work that we need to do um, in order to prepare us all? Um, and so I think the opportunity is there for us to start doing more in this way. And I think the, the fact that we now have some true data that outlines, here's what this looks like within a region when ransomware happens is going to make it so it's much easier for us to begin to have those conversations. Certainly, the, the, there are challenges that will still exist in terms of, you know, how, how much do we share with our colleagues and competitors? Um, how much data can we give them? Can we really talk truly about our threats and vulnerabilities? But I think we need to look for ways to move a little bit beyond that. And, you know, that may not necessarily get to full collaboration within a region. But I think if we start talking about how do we collectively prepare for something that might happen. I think it, it gives us all a much better chance to be ready when something does happen. And I think that's, you know, ultimately the message is a lot of this stuff is, is no longer hypothetical. This is real. It's, it happens all over the country. You know, it feels like every day. 
um, that somebody has a ransomware. And we can now see what happens when that when that occurs. And we need to start really talking about how to fix that. And, and I've, you know, previous organizations I've worked with, we've started down that path and we've started building some regional security capabilities. And so it is possible. Um, and I think now we really, you know, have the ability to say, here's why we need to do it. And I think that's going to open the door for a lot of us to start working more closely together. Yeah, it's it's Scott, it's really interesting. Um, you know, you touched on the idea of, of competition versus collaboration, especially regionally, there's quite a bit of, of competition. We're competing for the same patient pool, but then you talk about the regional impact and we want to take care of our region. Um, you know, some hospitals will tout their technology as a competitive advantage, right? We've got a great EHR, you can book appointments and all that. And I don't know if I've seen it yet, but I could envision a world where cybersecurity is touted as a competitive advantage. So it says we have the best technology and the best cybersecurity, which might inhibit collaboration. So uh, it, it really is a lot of tension there. Any more thoughts there? Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting challenge for sure. And I think it's, it's one where we do have to walk a bit of a fine line because I, I do think cybersecurity is going to increasingly become something that's talked about from a you know, uh, not necessarily a marketing perspective, but talked about in terms of a, a capability within a health system. You know, and certainly from UCSD health perspective, we're we're really trying to set ourselves up as leaders in this space for sure. Because you know what we see is that obviously it's it's good for us and our patients, but I think more importantly, you know, how can we contribute to healthcare in the nation as a whole? And I think that's you know what comes out of some of the research that Christian has been doing is you know how do we learn from these events and give back to the healthcare community. And so I think you can you can to some degree have it a little bit both ways, you know, with walking that very fine line where we can say, you know, listen, we're really at the leading edge of cybersecurity and because of that, we really want to take advantage of our knowledge and work with our peers and our partners in the region to try and help us all be better. And I think if we can sort of manage that conversation, I think it's really ultimately to the benefit of of everybody. Now, does that mean that we're going to get there, you know, um, by ourselves? Not necessarily. I think we need to start thinking about how, you know, regional uh, state and federal government can play a role in, in building out some of this um, infrastructure to try and create better regional resilience. Um, but I think we can start having the conversation now in a much more meaningful way. And I think there's opportunities for us to evolve this in a way that it's really good for all of us. Excellent. Excellent. Christian, I want to go back a little bit to um, that translator uh, role. And I would like your general advice to security professionals about communicating with clinicians. What, you know, to general, just general security professionals, what's your best advice when they are trying to, when, let's say they don't have someone in a role like yours, which almost everyone won't. What's your best advice to communicating with clinicians, you mentioned the idea of patient safety. You got to bring it back to patient safety. So let's go beyond that and maybe get a little more practical on, you know, any other specific advice where they probably are getting it wrong a lot of the time. That's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot we could do here. And and I would please, Scott, anyone else that uh, feels that they have some insight on this, please feel free to chime in. I would say it's not always about seniority. You know, um, and you have to know your organization. I'll say, for example, in academic medicine, departments tend to be very powerful little uh, areas. Um, they are headed, you know, at the very top of them is a chair. And so the first piece of advice I'd give you is 
understand how your organization is structured and where the power and decision makers lie. If you're at a community hospital, departments are going to be much less powerful. And so if you need to make some big organizational change and you're going towards every department by department, you're probably going to spin your gears for a long period of time. There's not in a position to be able to to make any effective change at that level. Now, you may at the end of that have to go and do some socialization and win over a few hearts and minds. But for the most part, if you're a community shop, your department's probably not going to be that strong. You'll need to go higher up in, in the food chain of clinical leadership. I would approach someone like the CMIO or the, uh, if you have a, a medically oriented CIO, possibly that. Um, the second, and then this contrast that if you're like an academic medical center where departments are very strong, the second piece of advice I would give is you should not always go straight to the top of the departments. If you think, hey, I need to go talk to the emergency uh, department about their medical devices and how critical their CT scanners are for trauma, and there's an issue with a particular known vulnerability in, in this particular uh, medical device, whatever, if you go straight to the chair, you're unlikely to get a meaningful response. And so what I would do is feel out who in the particular department would be most susceptible to your message. What I mean by that, usually go for the more technologically oriented, younger leadership in that aspect that can be very effective, can understand what you're talking about, and doesn't necessarily always have to be at the chair or vice chair level. So that's kind of my advice. You know, it Understand your shop, know where the power structures are. You don't always have to go to the top, find a sympathetic ear on the clinical side. Are those out there? Um, there are people out there more and more now as people are growing up practicing medicine with the technology. I jokingly say, you know, I've never used an electronic, I've never used a paper chart. I'm I'm just of the generation of doctors that have never used paper charts until six months into my fellowship. I had never handwritten a prescription as more and more of these younger, more technologically oriented, more familiar technological doctors come up in there. That message of cybersecurity as patient safety is going to be, you're going to find more and more and more of those allies in that space. The third thing I would say is that if you sensationalize it, if you pick some crazy scenario to try to communicate uh, your the cyber risk, it's going to turn people off. That's one thing that clinicians generally do not tolerate is that if you say, here's this crazy scenario where someone's going to die of a pacemaker. And by the way, I need you to do all this work rolling out MFA because I don't want this person to die of this pacemaker hack. And you're talking to a cardiologist. That's a losing conversation. So be careful when talking about patient safety impacts, you really have to speak with um, some legitimacy in that mm -hmm. space. There are some resources available. The Health Sector Coordinating Council has a few. There are some videos of some clinical simulations that we do here at UC San Diego that are on YouTube. Those have all been vetted to be very medically accurate as well as cyber accurate. And that too powerful one-two punch in a video can win some hearts and minds. So don't make the mistake of going really big and saying everything's going to be catastrophic and using unrealistic medical terms because you'll turn off that community pretty quickly. And and the one thing I would add to, I think, to that, and, and I think completely agree with everything Christian said, but I think the, the last thing is, you know, within healthcare, it's always going to be a losing battle to go in telling people what they need to do. I think the key really is in how do we build collaboration with our clinicians to involve them in the decision-making process of what it is we need to do and why we need to do it. 
So I, I think the the patient safety is sort of the the opener to that conversation, which is, hey, here's a risk. As Christian said, it's a it's a realistic risk. We've seen this. We know this happens. We need to do something about it. Let's work together to figure out the best way to do it, and talk through what that means to them and how it can be implemented and involve them in the decision making. And I think that is going to lead to a much more positive outcome. You know, when you talk about MFA, it's one thing to say you're going to do MFA and all they're going to be thinking about is, wow, this is just going to make my life harder. Well, if we get into the, you know, the, the decision making process, involve them in it, talk about what that workflow is going to look like, talk about where the changes are, think about ways to mitigate the impact of that change where it, you know, maybe isn't asking for your MFA challenge response every time you log in, but we, you know, do it a couple times through a shift to revalidate. You know, there's ways that we can approach this that allows us to collaborate with our stakeholders to have them bought into what we're trying to do and the reason we're doing it, but more importantly, bought into the way that we're going to do it so that the rollout then becomes much more supportive as opposed to me saying, you have to do this. It's us saying, this is something we need to do as an organization, and here's why it's a good thing for us to do. So I think that, to me, is really, really important, is making sure that the collaboration is at the forefront of all decision-making. Excellent. Very good. Um, Scott, I had heard that uh, your organization's doing quite a bit around AI and chat GPT and things like that. And um, anything you could tell us about what's going on there and uh, obviously the security angle of it? Um, and you know what's what's interesting is uh and christian maybe maybe you touch on this after scott goes i've i've heard a lot of people say that uh, in the cio position say that the, the difficulty of their role right now when it comes to ai is not sort of doing things with ai because th there's a lot about ai that's not ready for prime time but it's lowering the expectations of the organization when it comes to AI, <laughs> they have everybody banging down their door. What they think all these great things are going to happen. They're like, where is it? Let's go. We want to do this, that. And it's almost like science fiction stuff. So it's more of uh, tempering the expectations of the organization around AI. But Scott, I'll let you go first and tell me what's going on there in the security angle of it. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I think there's a lot of really interesting work happening in the AI space within healthcare. And, and obviously, you know, from a, a marketing perspective, the companies that, that are building out these AI models obviously are, are selling a dream um, about how amazing this can be across healthcare. Um, and, and I think there is a certain amount of tempering the expectations. But there's also an opportunity there that we think we can get involved in. And so we are starting to think about how do we pilot different use cases for AI within our healthcare organization. Um, and as you say, there's there's a lot to be concerned about when it comes to AI. And certainly, you know, as we think about the chat GPTs of the world, um, you know, we're having to build some guidelines around how our organization interacts with those large language models and generative AI um, to make sure that we're really using them in the most appropriate way. And so what we're really trying to do is, as opposed to sort of going full into chat GPT and sort of the, the, the public space, is how do we think about building something that can be private and secured and sort of within our infrastructure, but that leverages the capabilities of these large language models. And so that's really what we're piloting is working with you know, Microsoft and other partners to, to bring those AI models in-house into infrastructure that we understand and control and can secure, um, making sure that all of our security controls are built around that, but then allowing those, um, those models to interact with our EHR in a way that allows us to, to start to get some value out of this. 
And really what we're trying to do is, is look at sort of some small discrete use cases and see how is this going to work in this use case and really prove that out and then think, okay, how do we now move this to the next use case and the next use case, as opposed to trying to say, AI is a big bang that we're just going to invest heavily in. Um, I think that's a mistake because it's, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by all of the possibilities of AI. And as you say, the organizational expectations around it. But if we can take baby steps and say, here's how we prove it. Here's how we secure it. Here's, here's how we can demonstrate that there's value in these AI models, clinical value. Then I think that allows us to start getting you know, more and more excitement building about it. And I can tell you, there is a lot of excitement within the UC system and UC San Diego in particular around, you know, how can some of these AI models help with physician burnout? How can these AI models help with, um, you know, our ability to communicate better with our patients? Um, and throughout, we're thinking about all of the security that needs to be in place and making sure that we're working with our vendors, we're evaluating these security models, we're, we're following all of our best practices around how we assess new technologies. And we're really just doing it in a way that allows us to you know, make these small investments in AI, secure those small investments in AI, learn about how it works for us, and then begin to grow it over time. Uh, but there's a ton of opportunity, and we're seeing that opportunity. Um, and we're looking forward to seeing what AI can do for us as an organization. Very good. Christian, your thoughts around AI. Uh, people maybe just think, oh, he knows technology. Christian, what's going on? You know, doctor to doctor, am I going to lose my job? Uh, I think I think there are some significant implications for a lot of what doctors do currently and how AI will impact that. Um, I won't forecast much on that because I think it ends up just being a one specialty of medicine beating up on another. You know, everyone's saying radiologists are going to become extinct. I, I really don't think that's likely the case in the short term. But there are there's clearly some of what doctors do every day that can in the very near term be replaced with what uh, AI is promising. And, and I agree. I want to echo Scott's uh, sentiments that we should be really careful because they are really selling the dream. We need to see these things at scale. And what I'm really excited about and hopeful of is that the data will actually show clinical efficacy and improvement. Um, but I'm going to take a step. I'm going to take a sidestep for a minute and say, you know, I grew up really in the hacker space. Um, and so I often want to think about things in an adversarial way and, and, some of the early research I did about five years ago, we were looking at men in the middle attacks uh, for laboratory values. So we built a tool that would make a patient look like they had a particular disease when they didn't by changing laboratory values that were coming out of medical devices before it hit the uh, laboratory information system. What, you know, and we've always talked about confidentiality attacks in healthcare and the breaches. We've always talked about availability attacks in healthcare uh, with ransomware and DDoSs, but kind of the, the forgotten part of the CIA triad with healthcare has been this integrity attack issue. And we haven't really spent that much time with it. I think AI is honestly one of the superchargers for a practical integrity attack on healthcare. Let me give you an example. If you're going to try to um, change someone's allergy uh, allergies or change their dosing of a particular medication to cause some type of harm or chaos, you need clinical insight to make that believable. If you change an order in a computer to say, instead of giving a patient four milligrams of morphine, which is a normal dose, to give them 400 milligrams of morphine, the nurse is never going to give 400 milligrams of morphine, even if the computer says it's right. So how do you craft, you know, believable changes in laboratory values and medications and 
to cause some type of chaos or issue as an integrity attack in healthcare. I think AI is not only that the basis for doing that in a believable way and in an incremental way, but in a scalable way. The only way you're going to be able to perform in hospital-wide integrity attack that's believable is by leveraging something like AI. And so I'm kind of terrified um, a little bit about leveraging that type of thing in an adversarial way when we apply it towards integrity attacks where we're changing lab values, radiology images, uh, we're changing medication doses. So I think that's really going to probably kickstart a next generation of, of healthcare cybersecurity research is AI plus integrity attacks. So you can almost envision the query, the chat GPT query that would get the bad actor that would deliver those those numbers to the bad actor. Hey, chat GPT, if I was trying to do this, what would I do? And that's what they're doing with the phishing emails, right? So they're crafting phishing emails that no longer are obviously phony, um, and they would be using it almost the same way. Is that right, Christian? Yeah, exactly. Uh, chat GPT. Make me um, make me these laboratory results that show a patient developing diabetic ketoacidosis. You as an attacker may not have any idea what the sodium and the potassium and what the pH is supposed to be to be realistic, but chat GPT could probably figure that out. And if you ask it that, all of a sudden you take an attacker who knows nothing about healthcare and cannot and makes very unconvincing integrity attacks and turns them into essentially all the information they need from a doctor to be on their team to make these attacks meaningful and and particularly convincing to for physicians to act on and potentially give too much medication a medication the patient didn't need et cetera et cetera so i agree they can leverage that information to fill gaps in their clinical in their knowledge. knowledge to make it really more of an effective attack well scott in order to 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 do this they have to be in right? They got to be yeah. in the network and then they can start screwing around. If they're not in, they can't do it. And they're usually getting in now. Is it, is it, I, I've heard it's credentials. So, um, or are they coming in through a medical device? So, you know, it's, it's it, to me in my mind and you know, way better than me, there's attacks where you need a human, either their information or you need them to cooperate in a way, even unknowingly. And there's ones that possibly don't involve any humans that are you just coming in through uh, zero days or some sort of technological hack, right? I mean, there's two different ways. Yeah, there there are. And that's sort of historically been true. But I, I think what we're seeing over the years is that that sort of mix change a little bit over time. I think where we are right now is really much more in the the social, social engineering type attacks, which are the primary vector that the bad guys are getting in. And, and I think to the, you know, the point that we talked about earlier that Christian mentioned on the AI front is, you know, that's increasingly a concern is, you know, how do we, you know, arm our users with enough knowledge to be able to recognize those phishing attacks? Um, you know, when we look at the statistics in terms of the number of attacks that we block on a daily basis, it's it's staggering uh, the number of fishes that come in. And, and, you know, we have great technology that helps to manage that, but it doesn't catch everything. And so, you know, increasingly, we're looking at how do we improve our training and awareness for our users so that we can, uh, you know, manage the risk around those phishing attacks. Now, it's not to say that we don't have other types of technology risks, whether it's the, you know, the medical device risks, what we've seen over the last couple of years, the, the supply chain risk, you know, software providers, you know, being hacked and embedding malware into otherwise legitimate packages. 
I mean, all of those things continue to exist and really need to be part of our overall strategy for cybersecurity. Um, but the vast majority of the breaches that you know we've seen and the vast majority of the threats that we see are really coming through those uh, those end user attacks, whether it's you know uh, general phishing, spear phishing, and I think spear phishing is one that's going to be increasing as more and more of these AI capabilities come. We can start to leverage something like a Chat GPT and you know publicly available information and databases to really target individuals in a way that we haven't been able to see before. So I think it's it's really going to be critical that we start to think about arming our users with enough knowledge to be able to um, have less trust in a lot of these emails that are coming in. But again, it's a very fine line to walk because we also need to make sure that people are able to communicate and collaborate. Um, so it, it's an interesting shift that we're seeing. And I think it's going to shift even more with the use of AI tools towards that spear phishing attack. Uh, you know, but we still have to think about those technology challenges and build our strategy that ensures we can address all of those different facets of cyber risk. Yeah, and we're hoping that the cybersecurity vendors are able to sort of supercharge their tools with AI, right? That it's not just used by the bad guys, but it, it should be used by both teams and yep. the good guys should get to, but that's going to be on the vendor side, Scott, right? I it mean, is. That's, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, we're starting to hear a lot of talk about that in the vendor space, which is you know how can how can they start using a lot of these AI capabilities? And you know over the years, is sort of you can see some of the vendors kind of dipping their toes in a little bit and talking about ML models and AI models. But it you know I think you know with even just in the last six months that that conversation is ramping up. You know with the explosion of Chat GPT into the scene and what that's done for you know everybody you know in the world thinking about these new models. Um, I think vendors are going to have to take that step. I think if there's vendors that are not investing in AI and how AI can work within the product suite, those are the ones that are going to get left behind because it's it's too powerful and the adversaries are using it. And so if we're not using it, we're going to find ourselves in a very bad position. So, so Scott, you need to be hearing this from your vendors, right? It's important to you as a CISO to be hearing innovation, AI, from your vendors, from your cyber vendors. Like, guys, I need to know, like, you're driving just as hard as the bad guys. It, it's interesting dynamic. It's it's almost like, yes, in EHR and the other tools, on the more clinical tools, yeah, we want to hear that you're moving ahead, that you have a good roadmap and a good user group. But it's almost like so important that you're hearing those type of things from your cyber vendors. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, hearing it, but also seeing it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing to have somebody come in with a sales pitch saying, hey, we've got an AI powered this and an AI powered that. But, you know, I, I need to be able to see how that AI is going to actually contribute to improving my cyber defense. And I need to understand how their models are going to help defend against the, the counter AI. Um, you know, we are kind of getting into this space now where we're not necessarily just trying to defend against human adversaries and the the ransomware that they write or the fishes that they write. You know, with ChatGPT able to generate code, we can start seeing, you know, novel types of ransomware being written at a pace that would be, you know, unheard of. And so how do we keep up with that? How do we have the vendors that we rely on to help us to build our technology capabilities in cyber? 
How do they stay ahead or at least keep up with the adversaries that are definitely going to be investing the time and the effort into learning these tools and using these tools in a in a an offensive way? We need to be using the same tools in a defensive way, not only in terms of sort of just, you know, looking at telemetry and being able to extract value out of that telemetry, um, but also to build AI into a lot of our detection capabilities and be able to uh, be much more nimble about how we react to uh, potential behavioral changes in endpoints. And so there's a whole host of different capabilities that I think are going to need to be developed and evolved. Um, and I absolutely need to be hearing it and seeing it from my vendors to make sure that we're staying ahead of these uh, these risks and issues. So, Christian, you know, um, we talked about the that a lot of these attacks, most of these attacks are coming in through social engineering and that chat GPT and things like that being used by the bad guys are really supercharging those phishing emails and making them much more believable, much more convincing. Uh, what's your communication been to the to the clinicians about this risk uh, to keep them up to speed on what's going on? It's a great uh, question. I, I think that to answer that question, I want to just harken back to one of the great strengths that uh, collaboration between a clinician and uh, the cybersecurity team can make for you. And so um, one of the things that has always puzzled me is how we make a lot of decisions on, in cybersecurity with little or low quality evidence. We always think that uh, training is a cornerstone of operational resiliency, right? We, we think, hey, if, as long as we tell people that they're getting fished, they're going to become better at not getting fished. Mm -hmm. And when you ask them, well, show me where the proof of that is, it's often, oh, this is expert opinion, or this is anecdotal, or this is what we saw at our shop. And it reminds me of kind of what we did uh, in medicine, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, where your doctor would give you this medicine, but it wasn't necessarily based on evidence. It was based on their opinion or when uh, the, the degree in which with certainty we can make decisions really has matured in medicine in the last 50, 60 years. Now we're far more evidence-based. If you hear about that evidence-based medicine. Um, to answer your question about fishing, you know, I think we really need to challenge our paradigm of, of just if you give them training, they'll be better at it. I think we better be asking ourselves different questions like what is the best training to give them in what format, when to give it? Is it right after they fail a simulated phishing exercise? Is it right after they click on a real phishing email? Is it supposed to be required? What is the tone? These are all types of questions that are at the intersection of human psychology, cybersecurity and operations. And you mentioned, you know, clinicians, nurses, doctors, we're generally quite busy. So if you just think that a training solution is going to help them and it's going to improve your resiliency of your organization, really, I think we have a long way to go into proving that and then also finding out what the ideal way to do this. And so I'll just say one of the things that we're working on now at our shop is to look into that, to test, you know, what trainings work, what, in what format. Does it need to be context specific? Does it need to be interactive? Is it better to be 15 seconds? Is it better to be 30 minutes? These are things that we can test, measure, and at the end of the day, publish in literature that gives uh, not just our organization the best roadmap to phishing resilience, but hopefully can be applied to every sector. Uh, and the only way you do that is through like rigorous research methodology. It's unfortunately, it, it's the only way that you can get that kind of high quality data. 
we're an academic shop. We have those types of research chops. We have mm -hmm. buy-in from the research side and the cyber side and the health side. And at the end of the day, what that's leading to is, you know, we're leading this really cool initiative to test a lot of this training hypothesis. And at the end of the day, hopefully bring something to the rest of the country and rest of the world is this is the best way you train your users against phishing. Excellent. Well, we're almost out of time. I want to give each of you an opportunity for a final thought. Usually how I couch this is I ask for your best piece of advice for someone in your position at a comparable sized health system. So Scott, someone a CISO, a same, similar organization, based on your experience, your career so far, what's your best piece of advice for them? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it, it ultimately goes back to, to collaboration. I think it's it's making sure that you're not looking at security as something you tell people to do, but something that you work with your team to figure out how to do. And I think what I would say for other organizations of, of you know our size and complexity, while you may not have a medical director of cybersecurity, it's absolutely going to be in your best interest to find those physician champions that you can work with and collaborate with and help you to spread the word about why cybersecurity is important. Because I think it's going to be really, really challenging to be able to make meaningful change unless you have buy-in from your stakeholders. And the physician group is one of those critical stakeholders that can be very difficult to reach if you're not speaking in a way that, that is really meaningful to them. Uh, so certainly collaboration, focusing on collaboration and finding the right kind of partnership within the physician group is extremely critical. And I think if you can do that, if you can find that partner or, you know, several partners in some cases, I think that's going to allow you to be much, much more successful in being able to roll out the kind of meaningful cybersecurity change that organizations need to be doing these days. Excellent. Christian, your final thought? My final thought, I guess I'd be speaking to other clinicians. I'll, I'll say this. Uh, if you're a clinician and you're watching this, uh, my, my sincere plea to you is that if you share, if you have any interest in cyber and you feel imposter syndrome, like you can't, you don't know what all these technical terms mean, or you're, you don't have a certification like a CISSP, don't worry. Um, be, showing up and sharing your clinical expertise with the cyber team working together, you're going to pick up a lot. You don't have to be a, a hacker before. You don't have to be a cybersecurity professional before. You can pick up some of this and still be on a very effective um, contributor to your organization's cybersecurity. And so I would my plea to you would be to do that. And then secondly, there are a lot of benefits to doing so. Cybersecurity is a very marketable skill. And as healthcare continues to struggle in many ways, and clinicians have burnout and other things that can really make your career particularly challenging, diversifying it with cybersecurity is a winning strategy. It's a fulfilling area. It's intellectually challenging. It's very important. It's exceptionally marketable. So clinicians out there watching this, uh, you should convince your organization that you need to be their next medical director of cybersecurity. And don't worry, you don't have to have all the cyber chops up front. Uh, you'll get there and you will be exceptionally valuable to your organization. Well, I have no doubt that uh, every CISO out there would love to have someone uh, like you, Christian, in your position on their on their um, team, so to speak. So uh, I would be very surprised if I don't see more of these positions popping up at health systems around the country. Uh, Christian, Scott, amazing conversation. I want to thank you so much for your time today. Yep. Thank you, Anthony. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.